If you're in Mark chapter 3, say amen. amen. This section of Mark's gospel begins with a set of verses 7 through 19 of Mark chapter 3 that are really just there in Mark's narrative to give us some contextual understanding. The main point of the text is found actually in verses 20 through 35. That's the main story Mark wants us to get at. But really the main point within that story doesn't happen until verses 34 and 35, which if you'll notice in chapter 3 is the very last two verses of the text. So I'm called upon to, to preach this passage in a way where I've got to explain the story as we go and then we will hit you with the main point at the end and that's where the application will come into our life this morning. But if you don't hang on and study with me up to that point, the application won't make much sense to you. So if you're ready to study your Bible, say amen together. All right, Mark 7 and look at Mark 3 rather, verse 7 through 12 and let's let's get some context. This is what's going on in Jesus' life. But Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea. So he just needed to get away, but he couldn't because a great multitude from Galilee followed him and from Judea and from Jerusalem, from in Jamea and from beyond Jordan. And they about Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they had heard what great things he did, came unto them. And he spake to his disciples that a small ship would wait on him because of the multitude, lest they should throng him, for he had healed many insomuch that they pressed upon him for to touch him as many as had plagues and unclean spirits when they saw him, fell down before him and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. And he straightly charged them that they should not make him known. Here's what's going on. You've got these gigantic crowds forming wherever Jesus goes. He cannot get away from people who have issues. People who have needs and they've heard that he can heal their diseases, cast out their demons. And so Mark says they press into him so much so that he has to get on a boat and go out into the water. Probably for two reasons. He needed some space to be able to teach the multitude. And they say that that when you're standing on the water, it actually helps the audio a little bit. And, And it helps his voice to be able to carry a little bit farther. And Mark tells us that that in verses 7 through 12, that Jesus' popularity is like at a peak level. People are coming from everywhere. So then Mark tells us what Jesus does to fix that. He enlists 12 disciples to help him. Now these disciples have already been saved before Mark 3. But in verses 13, um, 13 through 19... Mark gives us the, 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 the account where Jesus takes these 12 disciples, which by the way, that word disciples means students, pupils, taught ones. And so they're going to take these disciples, Jesus is, and he's going to turn them into apostles. So this isn't where they get saved. This is where their ministry shifts. It goes from being a student in the classroom to now a preacher of the gospel. But even in this context and dispensation, it's even deeper than that. It's actually an apostle, which meant that Jesus was going to commission them and give them supernatural power to do exactly in people's lives what he's doing. The truth is, is Jesus' ministry is so popular, he can't keep up. And so he says, I need help. And he gives them supernatural power from heaven to heal diseases and cast demons out. And verse 13 through 19 gives us that list of names. And by the way, we're studying each of these men's lives on Wednesday nights at seven o'clock on Wednesday nights. And here 
I want to encourage you to come because we're studying the lives of Peter and James and, and we'll, we'll study John, the beloved uh, disciple, this coming Wednesday night. I'm excited about that. So, so, so Mark's just trying to get in our minds that Jesus' popularity has grown so much to the point where he has to enlist help. But as we get into the main part of the text, here's what Mark's going to do now. He's going to show us that as Jesus' popularity has grown, so is his opposition. Which, by the way, don't think that when you're effective for the, for the cause of Christ, that the devil's just going to sit on the sidelines. Right. Don't think that you scare the devil. Right. No, in fact, if you do anything for God at any level, the devil is mad about it. Yeah. And the devil is going to attack you every bit that he can. One person even said this, when you get to a new level, you get a new devil. <laughs> With every new level comes new devils. And it's true. The devil has an army of demons that he will dispatch into the life of a church and the life of a believer and the life of a true follower of Christ to slow their work for the gospel down. And that's what happens in Jesus' life. Look at verses 20 and 21. And the multitude cometh together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him for they said, he's beside himself. Now I want you to get this. The opposition that Mark just says comes into Jesus' life, don't miss this, comes from a source you'd least expect. Mark said it was Jesus' friends that heard about him and went to lay a hold of him because... They deemed that he was beside himself, that he had lost his mind, that he was a lunatic. So what does that word friends exactly mean in verse 20? Well, they call it a Greek idiom. That means it can mean anything from a general acquaintance to a work associate to a relative or a family member. What does it mean in Mark's context? Look at verse 31. It tells us that Jesus is actually referring to his blood family. There came then his brethren and his mother, and standing without sin unto him, calling him. So here's what's happened. Jesus' family is presumably in Nazareth. And they receive reports from this crowd. Word has gotten through. This is even before Facebook. I don't know how they got word. They got word that the popularity of Jesus' ministry had gotten to the point where, where he's overextended. And his ministry has stressed him out to the point where he's absolutely lost his mind. And so Mark says that his own family members set out to lay hold of him. Do you know what that phrase means, to lay hold of him? It means to seize him. It's the same phrase they used over and over in the Gospels to refer to somebody arresting another person. In fact... If you study it, it's the very phrase that was used in the Gospels to explain and describe what the Roman soldiers did when they seized Jesus with the intent to kill him. Now catch the irony here. The, the, the very people in Jesus' life who were closest to him, the very people who should have been supporting him the most, who should have understood what he was really about. These people are the ones that are not only saying he's out of his mind, but they are traveling all the way to Capernaum where he was so they could seize him and lock him inside until he gets mentally sane. His own family's doing this. He's facing unexpected opposition from his own relatives. But then Mark does something interesting. 
He, he almost seems at first in verse 22 like he's going to chase a rabbit trail. He stops with this story and he transitions into another story. And the story has to do with opposition, the same theme, but it's from a more expected group that you'd receive opposition from. And Jesus has already received opposition from up to this point, And that is the scribes, his most fierce rivals. And this group of religious elites, Mark's going to teach us, comes to Jesus, opposes him like his family opposes him, but they actually accuse him with the most absurd accusation. They call him Satan. Look at verse 22. And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub. And by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils. You see that? He's, they attributed his work of casting out demons to Satan. We're going to later find that that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. When you attribute the work of the Holy Spirit to the work of Satan, you, you have such a hard heart that you are blaspheming the Holy Ghost at that point. But Jesus quickly refutes their accusation with common sense and an easy to understand parable. Look at verse 23 through 26. And he called them unto him and said unto them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand, but hath an end. Would you look up here, please? This is common sense. Jesus is saying, Satan is not going to oppose himself. You're calling me Satan and told me I'm Satan and I'm casting out Satan. Why would Satan oppose himself? That would be equivalent to a nation going into a civil war. Civil wars don't make sense. When a nation rises up against itself, it makes itself weaker for when a real foreign enemy comes. And he's saying the same thing right here. The devil's smart. He's smart enough to not oppose himself because when you oppose yourself, you defeat yourself and Satan isn't ready to be defeated yet. Jesus presses into a little more. He uses another illustration to tell them what's really happening here. Verse 27. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man and then he will spoil his house. Now, this is simple to understand. I hope you're studying with me. If somebody's going to rob a home, Jesus said, they're going to have to first get through the owner of the house. In essence, they have to be stronger than the strong man of the house they're trying to rob. Does that make sense? Yes. Here's the point. Satan is the strong man of the house. Satan is roaming through this world trying to establish his kingdom in the lives of people. He's trying to possess people and oppress people and addict people and destroy people's lives. But Jesus says, I'm the stronger man. Amen. Jesus says, I have come to rob Satan of his rule and his power in men's lives. And so by casting out demons, Jesus is proving that he is stronger than the strong man. He's proving that he's not Satan. He's stronger than Satan. Somebody say amen. Amen. See, even though the scribes opposed Jesus, they didn't derail him. They didn't sidetrack him from his purposes in the world. He stayed on task and he actually finished his conversation with them very straightforwardly. Look at verse 28. Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men. Blasphemies wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. What is blasphemy of the Holy Ghost? He says in verse 30. Because they said he hath an unclean spirit. Their hearts were so hard. 
that they would not acknowledge the power of the Holy Spirit working through Jesus' life. But they gave the credit to Satan. And Jesus concluded, you've got to have such a hard heart to make that accusation so hard that it's likely it can never be softened. That accusation is so absurd, so godless, such blasphemy that it reveals to me you are nowhere close to regarding my authority or my deity as the Son of God. And listen to me, that's a dangerous place for us to get. And I wish I could park here and preach a little bit, but I really don't think it's Mark's greatest point. Mark's bigger point is what he's going to make in verse 31 through 35, because here's what he does. He gets off the story of the scribes and he goes back to the first story he started with. It's like, Mark, focus here, man. Finish the story you started with. But this is intentional. This this is a structure, a literary technique that Mark used under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he didn't just use it here. He used it in several other places. You know what they call this technique right here of Mark's writing? They call it a Markin sandwich. it's It's where you start with a piece of bread. So one story, verse 22, 21, he started on the story of family, Jesus' family opposing him. But then you put some meat in there and it's another story. A lot of times with the same theme, just like the scribes opposing him. But then he comes in with the bottom part of the bread and he finishes what he started. And that's what he's going to do with verse 31 through 35. He's going to go back to the story of Jesus' family opposing him. Now I want you to catch what he's doing. Okay, watch here. He's tying in the opposition Jesus received from his own family with the opposition that he regularly received from the scribes in order to make the point, watch here, that sometimes following Jesus will invite conflict in your life, not just from the expected sources, but from unexpected sources. From the people you at least expect, like your own family and friends. Let's see how Mark finishes verse 31. There came then his brethren and his mother, and standing without sin unto him, calling him. And the multitude sat about him, And they said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren without seek for thee. In other words, they've come all the way to find you, Jesus. They're outside. Look what Jesus said in verse 33. Who is my mother or my brethren? Now catch this. They traveled all the way to help Jesus in their mind to save him from himself. Yet Jesus barely gave them the time of day. In fact, he asked an offensive question. Jesus, your mom and dad, I mean, your mom and your your brothers, they're looking for you. And Jesus said, who are my mom and brothers? Implying that they're not his family. Now, this would have been especially offensive in the culture in which they lived. Because in the Bible day, the the way a a, a person valued family was this. They, They put family above everything. And everyone. So to break family ties with, with your physical family would have been shameful. It would have been socially destructive in this day. So what is Jesus doing? I'll tell you what he's not doing. He's not willfully disrespecting his mother. And he's not willfully disrespecting his brothers. Jesus loved his mother. Jesus loved his brother. He loved his mother so much that, that on, his, on his deathbed on a cross, he looked to, to the apostle John. We'll talk about this Wednesday. And he said, John, I want you to care for her until she dies. He made provision for her care. That's how much he cared about his mother. He's not disrespecting his family. This is one of those hard sayings of Jesus. Where sometimes Jesus said something so radical to shock us into attention. And so what is the point that he's making? Well, he's trying to make the point to his disciples 
that he just commissioned to do his work. And it's a point found in verse 34 and 35. And he looked round about on them which sat about him. I'll tell you who that was in just a moment. And here's what he said to that group. Behold my mother and my brethren. In other words, these people sitting right here, these are my brothers. These are, th- this is my family. For whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and my mother. Who are the people that he was pointing at and saying, these are my brothers. This is my family. It was the 12 disciples mentioned in verse 13 through 19. And Jesus looked at them to say this, doing my father's will. He's teaching them a lesson. Doing my father's will has brought opposition. Not just from the religious leaders who you would expect it to come from, but from my own family, from my closest of friends. And because of that, my closest relationships have been forced to shift. My strongest bond is no longer with my physical family, but with my spiritual family. And he tells his disciples, you guys are my family. You're my brothers because now you're with me. You understand me. You're following me. You're surrendered to the Father like I am. We're both doing his will. Jesus is making the point. I've had to forsake my own family for the time being in order to do my father's will. I've had to endure opposition from the people who I love the most. And he says to his disciples, if you're going to follow in my footsteps, if you're going to be commissioned to do my will, if you're going to dedicate my life to the ministry, you're going to have to be willing to do the very same thing. He says, following Jesus will inevitably put you into conflict even with those you're closest to. And some of you are shaking your head because you know that's true. Opposition from the scribes of the world, the lost, the religious antagonists, the the, the religion from which you were converted out of, the obvious enemies of the true gospel. Hey, that's to be expected. You know when you go to work there's going to be scribes. You know when you go out in the world, there's going to be scribes. You know to be converted to true Christianity, grace, and Jesus alone for salvation, that you had to walk away maybe from a room full of scribes. You expect opposition from them, but you know when it really hurts? You know when your commitment to the Lord's real is really put to the test? is when that opposition and conflict comes from your own family and friends. The people who you love. You see, when like Jesus' family, your family thinks you've lost your mind. They think you're beside yourself. They think you've gone off into the deep end. They don't support you getting baptized or rebaptized. They don't support you becoming a member of a Baptist church and walking away from the way they raised you or the church they brought you up in. They don't support that you're no longer going to Mass. They don't, refor- they don't support that you refuse to baptize your infant child like they baptized you. They, they don't support the fact that you pray to God and God alone and not marry. They don't support the fact that you believe you can confess your sins to God and don't have to come to the preacher. They don't support your change of lifestyle. They don't support the way that you're choosing to raise your kids now. They don't support how often you go to church now. They don't support some of the things you choose not to do now. And as a result, you're shunned, or at best, you're kept at a distance, you're talked about, you're mocked, you're misunderstood, you're misaligned, you're intentionally left out of things. 
You hear things spoken towards you in jest now because all of a sudden they say you're too good for us. You're one of those religious people now. I'm talking about opposition that might be coming at this very moment into your life from your immediate family. From your extended family. From your work family. From lifelong friends. We're talking about people you love. People that say they love you and are close to you. Now all of a sudden they're opposing you because of how your commitment to the Lord has changed your belief system. It's changed your priorities. It's changed your life. It's changed your morals. It's changed your values. If you really come after Christ, I'm talking you believe the gospel. You forsake all, follow him, repent of your sin, and let him just absolutely be the Lord of your life. Listen to me, some people aren't going to understand that. And you will face conflict even from those you would never expect to oppose you. And Jesus is telling his disciples and he's telling us, I've faced opposition even from my own family. And if you follow me, there's a good chance you will too. And he would teach them this principle for the next three and a half years. He would say it in different ways, but ultimately it would come down to this. If you're going to follow me, it'll be costly. And you cannot be my disciple unless you are willing to forsake all, including your closest relationships if necessary. You are not ready to be an apostle unless you are ready to, one, walk away from the world, two, walk away from your sin, and number three, stay faithful to me in spite of conflict from those you're closest to. So I'm just forced to ask you this morning. If God's will called upon you to sacrifice the closest relationships in your life, would you do that? I'm not asking you to go cut that off. I'm saying that your commitment to God's will will repel them. You know, it's very likely that if you're really following God's will, that you might do some things, change some things that will be misunderstood. And if that makes you choose between your closest relationships or God's will, what are you choosing today? Your answer to that reveals whether or not you are ready to be a disciple. You might have found Jesus. But you know how you know if you're ready to really follow Jesus? Is if you are so surrendered to his will that you are willing to pay any cost. That brings me to this question. If potentially losing close relationships... Is part of following Christ. How do we handle that? How do we respond to that? How do we prepare for that? The same way Jesus did. The same way he tried to teach his disciples to. He looked at them and said, you are now my family. Watch here. Jesus was making his spiritual family his closest bond. Even over his physical family. And that's how our relationships might have to shift over time if conflict comes. 
Now, knowing the likelihood of our spiritual decisions alienating us from the people we love the most, that might not happen, but it very well could happen. Some of our closest co-workers, some of our lifelong friends, some of our own family members. Knowing this, church, my challenge to you today is you should develop strong bonds within your spiritual family. Strong bonds within your church family. Strong bonds with other followers of Christ who are headed in the same direction, who are following the same Lord and surrender to the same will of the Father. Sometimes in this Christian life, if you're doing right, you will be by yourself. You will be opposed. And when that happens, if you don't have strong ties inside of your church family, if you're currently not doing life with other Christians, you'll get really lonely really quick. And the devil knows exactly when you're really lonely. And that's when he'll tempt you to go back on the Father's will. Because he, not just, he doesn't just know your weak spots. He, know, he understands and knows your weak times. And he knows at what time in your life when you're most emotionally vulnerable to think this in your mind. You know what? What, 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 what I'm gaining from following Christ really isn't worth what I'm having to give up. I think I'm going to walk away from this whole church idea. And that thought would never be from God. That's from the devil. It's in these kind of moments, please hear me, that you so desperately need to be able to pick up the phone and text or call a brother or sister in Christ that you've built a strong relationship with. One that can pray with you and one that can encourage you and one that can empathize with you and one that can suggest scripture passages for you to read. One that is part of your spiritual family. That's why Solomon writes this in Ecclesiastes chapter number four. Look at these verses. He says two are better than one. He's talking about Christian friendship. And then he says, for if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone if he falleth. For he hath not another to help him up. Listen to me. You're going to fall. You're going to get discouraged. You're going to get knocked down. You're going to be opposed. And Solomon uses prophetic language. He says, woe to you if when you fall, you're by yourself. Woe to you. Anytime that's said in the Old Testament, it, it is pronouncing a curse upon that individual or that nation. And he's saying, you are cursed. Shame on you if you fall without first having formed strong enough connections with your church family that they would be there in a moment's notice to pick you up. Shame on you if you go to church on Sundays, but you keep your spiritual family at a distance. And when you fall spiritually, you have nobody but your drinking buddies to turn to. Woe to you. Shame on you. Charles Swindoll put it this way. Friendships must be cultivated. They don't automatically occur when calamity strikes. And I've never heard of a rent-a-friend business. You cannot be determined to walk alone. And when you're opposed, expect everyone to come running to help you when you fall. If there's going to be someone there to help you when you fall, you need to make sure you're walking with people you trust before you fall. You need to learn to cultivate friendships while you're on your feet. Because conflict's coming. And there's no better place, friends, to form deep, meaningful Christian relationships than in the body of Christ. Church that God has put you in. There's no better place to find those meaningful relationships. That's why I'm so passionate about growth step number three, connection groups. You know what happened in our connection group this morning? We started 950 or so taking prayer requests. And we, people just kept listing things they're going through and burdens they're going through and family members they want us to pray for. And we didn't get to start praying until 1016. 
And then, and then Brother Wes Payton, it's almost like no one, no one else was in the room. I asked him to pray. It's almost like it was just him and God. Because it was. It's like he was talking to God like he knew him. The Holy Spirit filled that room so much so we didn't even get to our talk it over questions. We didn't even start talking about it. Why? Because we were burdened, bearing one another's burdens. Lifting one another up. Kids that needed prayed for. Family members that needed prayed for. Situations that, that needed interceded for. And that's why you go to those connection groups. So you can build relationships while you're on your feet. So you can reach out to your real family. And say, bear this burden with me. That's why you come to evening services. So you don't just see the back of somebody's head once a week. You can't connect with them that way. But when you're singing with them three times a week, fellowship with them three times a week, and then serving with them, get involved in a ministry, that's growth step three, four, and five. If you will plug into growth step three, four, and five, I promise if you put enough time and enough effort, you will reap a harvest of meaningful relationships. Be patient. Give it time. You don't manufacture meaningful relationships. God does that, but he does that when you place yourself in a position to have those relationships formed. I have seen people that were Sunday morning only people, and I love you, and God's for you, and this church is for you. But I've seen those people go from, from, from growth step one to growth step two. They join the church. They go from growth step two to growth step three. And I've watched. It, it, sometimes it's taken a year. Sometimes it's taken two or three years. But I've seen as church members, new church members, plug themselves in and just let God organically tie them and connect them with the hearts of people in our church. I've seen God honor their efforts. And I've seen some people join the church and it's like they go like this. Everybody come to me. And in three months, they say, Pastor, I, I think we're going to have to go to the church. We can't connect with anybody. It just, there's a lot of clicks here. Just a lot of people that, you know what, I just can't connect. And maybe what they're feeling is absolutely real. But my first question is this. Tell me what you've done in the last 90 days. To connect. Well, I come to church every Sunday morning. That's not going to do it. And I'm telling you, one of the reasons why evening services are so powerful and, and ministry involvement is so powerful and connection groups are so powerful because it's an application of this text. Jesus needed his 12 disciples not just to do his work, but to do life with him. And you need people to do life with that are on the same page as you are. But then I recognize this. There are some in here, like myself, that you'll never face alienation from your family. You'll never lose close friends because of your allegiance to Christ. That's me. I'm a second generation Christian. My parents are absolutely in love with Jesus. Any decision I've ever made in my life, I've been 100% supported by my parents. I'm married to a woman that goes to church with me. I don't have to beg her to come to church. She didn't have to beg me to come to church. It's kind of like what I do for a job, so I, I better be here. <laughs> Don't think I'm spiritual because of that. But. But, but any spiritual decision I make, she's got my back. I've got deacons that I pray with every Sunday morning at 9 o'clock. We pray for you by name, by the way. And every one of those men have my back. Any spiritual direction I want to take our church that is under the authority of God's word, they're like, go get him, pastor. Amen. 
My closest friends are our ministry staff. I've never had Mike or Sid or Tanner or Eli ever oppose me because I wanted to read my Bible more or because I told them, guys, let's, let's not do that because it's not holy. Because I chose a good decision for my family. Never had that. But some of you have. And those of us who haven't had that, we take for granted. But there are some people who come and worship with us every week, and the only family they have is the family they worship with on Sundays. We get to go home with our wife that loves Jesus, our husband that loves Jesus, our kids that enjoy church. But some gave their life to Christ and they lost friends because of it. Because they stopped doing on Friday and Saturdays what they used to do before they got saved. They're trying their best not to get drunk on the weekends, but to prepare themselves for the Lord's Day. And when they get phone calls and they keep saying no, there's only so many excuses they can make before they have to outright say, you know what, I'm just trying to live for the Lord now. And when they say that, it's over. And then that person who's coming to church on Sunday will look put together. But here's what they're thinking in their mind. Man, I wish I had friends. Man, I wish I had a family. They look across and see a husband and wife that is singing together and praying together, but their husband won't come to church with them. They look around and see kids. They see other kids that come to church with their family, but their parents don't come with them. Sometimes the only love some of our kids get that come on Sunday morning and Wednesday nights is the love they get from our bus workers and our children's ministry workers and our nursery workers and our youth workers. But there are some teenagers in here that, that their mom and dad had to drag them to get here. And when they come here, they won't even look at a guest teenager. They won't even shake their hand. They don't even think outside of their box. They think everybody's life is as good as theirs. You understand that some people that worship with us on Sunday, every Sunday, we are the only brothers and sisters they have right now. Only friends they have right now. What does that mean? Be a brother. Be a sister. Get your nose from pointing up in the air and looking at everybody and evaluating them and critiquing them. And... Get a handout like that. Give a hug. Exchange phone numbers. Sit by someone that, that you've seen the last three Sundays have sat by themselves. Watch somebody in ministry where they come in and they come out, come in and come out. Maybe not because they're stuck up, because frankly, they are just stinking nervous because they don't know people. Look for them. What single lady has come in the last four weeks and she sat by herself every week? Who is that? Do you even know? I do. What person comes in here and goes out and comes in and goes out and you've never once introduced yourself to them? You're the only family they might have and God might have put them here not to be a member of a church, but to be a member of the fellowship family. And when opposition comes, you might be all they have. I'm thankful that through the years, our church has done a pretty good job at this. We fail sometimes, we do, we fail sometimes at this. 
But I can look at some cases where we've succeeded. Like Karen Downs. Karen, raise your hand up so everybody knows who you are. Karen came to a food pantry at our old property all by herself. Didn't really have much of a family. Came to Fellowship Baptist Church, got some food. But she got more than food for her belly. She got food for her soul because she got saved that day. And she got saved from the crown down, like all over the place. She didn't like dip her toe in the shallow and she went into the deep end. She didn't even know how to swim. And she started coming to every service. It's amazing to watch what our church did to rally around her. I've seen some other widow ladies like her that have actually put her in their car and taken her all the way to our church plants in Arizona for big days. I've seen men in our church go and pick her up. She couldn't bring herself. I've seen people rally around her and help her. We haven't always been perfect, but Karen Downs now has a family. And it's the fellowship family. I'm looking at a boy right here with a purple sweater on. It's Emmanuel Serrano. He's got a little brother named Chris Alvarez. You know how they came to Fellowship Baptist Church? They rode our buses. Their parents have never come to our church. They're good people, hard workers, so kind. But our church just isn't for them. But Manny came, Chris came, they got saved. They never stopped coming. It's not like their parents rattle them like this and say, get up, it's church time. They just get out of bed. They go to our, they both have graduated from our Fellowship Baptist Academy. They're both in college. They're both still serving the Lord. Why would they do that? If they didn't have to get up and go to church, why would they choose that? Because they found a family here. Staff members. And Christian school staff. And bus workers. Took them in like boys, like their own sons. I'm thinking of Joyce Barnes. Joyce, wave your hand back there. Yeah, she, she's, she's basically the, the stepmom of the church. And take that however you want. She was my fifth grade teacher, and she thought math was important, and I didn't, so I'm going to dig at her every time I can. She came as a single woman with no family to liberal Kansas was employed by Fellowship Baptist Academy. And she's now phasing in slowly to retirement. I met with Joyce not too long ago. I said, where are you going to go for retirement? I'm not going nowhere. I'm staying right here in Liberal. Why? This is my family. It's exactly what she told me. People like the Puthers, the Knutsons, the Pharaohs have literally taken that stepmom in. And loved on her. I think of Kristen Dolan, who I met with in the K Cafe when she first came to Liberal Kansas as a brand new teacher in our school district. She came and said, I, I want to join your church. And so she had a testimony of salvation. She got baptized and she left her family to come here. And most teachers, when they leave their family to come here, they're like, I need two years on the resume, then I'm going back. But Kristen's never left. She's went through some really hard, low times in her life. And the reason why she hasn't left is because she has found a family here that in some ways is closer to her than her physical family. So we haven't always gotten it wrong. There's been times, many times, 
when Fellowship Baptist Church has indeed been the Fellowship Baptist family to people. But there have been times when we need to get better. Three statements and I'll be done. When it comes to opposition, you ready? Statement one, expect it. If Jesus faced it and the disciples faced it, you'll face it. So when you're following Jesus and you're sold out and, and those closest to you don't like it, don't blame that on Jesus. He told you it happened. Don't you think for a moment, don't be shocked. Because if you don't expect it when it comes, you'll get so discouraged, you'll stop. So reorient your expectations right now so that you're not disappointed whenever you lose people closest to you because you're sold out to the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, prepare for it. Prepare for it. How do you do that? Build relationships in your church family right now. If, if opposition comes and you fall and you have no meaningful Christian relationships, do not expect people to come running to you. You can't rent a friend. So get one now. Quit holding people here. Number three, look for it. Every time you come into this church, look for somebody you can adopt. Look for somebody that can be your foster child. Look for someone that can be your brother, your sister, your son, your daughter. Someone that is yearning for family and friends. And they need to find it in this place. Let's cultivate an environment and protect an environment that meets emotional, physical, and spiritual needs just like a family does. And when God sends us new family members and you see them run through that baptistry, you mark their names down and say, next service, I'm going to go extend to them the right hand of Christian fellowship. And I'm going to call them by the name brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so. And I'm going to let them know, I got you. We might not have kids the same age. We might not have the same personality or the same likes or dislikes. We might not have a lot in common. But if you ever need anything, I got you. That's what we ought to be about. Please stand, every head bowed and every eye closed.